Good afternoon to a special country hour, as we do during the summer in the cricket. This is just a shortened show, but of course you can get the full country hour because it's going to air right now, being presented by normal presenter, well, some people call her normal, Belinda Varischetti, and you can catch that program over on digital and streaming. All you've got to do is get your ABC Listen app on your phone and then click on the region that you're in and you'll hear the full show every day when the cricket's on. And I do encourage you to do that not only today but tomorrow. We've got a special show on tomorrow. I'll give you more details on that uh, very shortly. But uh, today, pastoralists and farmers from across Western Australia will soon have to comply with new tightened land management standards. Now, this is the state government's attempt to reverse degradation. Steph Sinclair has been taking a close look at this and uh, she's just chatting here to Belinda Varischetti and Belinda asked her to start with uh, just how significant this is. It's pretty significant, Belinda, and something that will eventually impact landholders across the whole state. The new system is in its early days and the details of how and when it will roll out across WA are still being worked through, but changes are coming. The Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development has drafted this new framework for what it calls sustainable pastoral management. DPIRD plans to roll it out in the West Kimberley first, and that will happen next year. So what's really prompted this? It was a report tabled back in 2017 from the Office of the Auditor-General. It found current standards weren't enough to protect the ecological sustainability of WA's pastoral land. So DPIRD has decided to completely change the way it assesses land. And how will assessments be done in the future? Basically, there'll be more robust oversight and compliance checks. Deep Herd's Dr Rick Fletcher is among those leading this change and he says it's all about making expectations and standards clearer. The, the critical element that we're ensuring happens is that everyone understands what is to be uh, achieved and, uh, and, and what's acceptable performance and what's not acceptable performance. So it's not down to an individual person doing an inspection of a property. At the end, end of the assessment, everyone will know whether or not where the property sits in terms of acceptable or unacceptable land condition and what then needs to happen. A couple of main changes is that we no longer assess land systems. We now assess the key pastures. So a lease might have a, a large number of pastures where which aren't necessarily uh, palatable to cattle. So we're now focusing most of our assessments on, on the key pastures, the, the ones that actually make up what industries call the carrying capacity, which are the pastures that, that the cattle actually eat, because they're the ones that are going to be impacted by grazing the most. So that then simplifies uh, the assessments that we do. And the other key element is is that we being very clear about what percentage of the, those pastures need to be in good condition and what percentage of those pastures mustn't be in poor condition. Steph, what happens then if land that's assessed is considered to be in poor condition? Could it mean that the pastoralist is ordered to destock? Yes, it could, Bill. Under the Soil and Conservation Act, the Soil Commissioner has quite a lot of power. And while those powers haven't changed, the main point of difference in the future will be there's now a clearer trigger for when action should be taken. 
So the commissioner can actually put on a soil conservation notice, which actually requires the lease owner uh, to actually undertake specific actions. And that can be destocking, it can be uh, putting up fences, it can be doing earthworks, it can be doing lots of different things depending upon the specific uh, issue. So it's quite a powerful act. In fact, the commissioner even has the power to actually go on on all property and actually undertake actions themselves if they actually conceive that to be uh, necessary. This is the Country Hour and today talking about some of the new land management standards that WA pastoralists and farmers will soon have to comply with. And this is all part of the state government's attempt to reverse degradation. Kimberley reporter Steph Sinclair is going through the details for you this afternoon, joining us from our ABC studio in Kununurra. Steph, any idea what pastoralists think of this? So there have been a couple of meetings in the West Kimberley on this new framework and they were fairly well attended by local pastoralists. I've actually heard quite a bit of positive feedback from them on the department's consultative approach to this. Many were really pleased to see the higher-ups from DPIRD putting on these face-to-face meetings. And there's also been some broad support of improved clarity this framework might bring. But as you can imagine, there are some concerns. I spoke to Lauren Bell, who works with the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association. She says there's still some unanswered questions. A really important point that got made um, was just how the incoming Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act will impact pastoralists' abilities to undertake any remedial soil works that they might need to do to improve degraded areas. So there wasn't much clarity on that. Uh, So that's something that KPCA will still be pursuing to get better understanding on. Uh, I think pastoralists were concerned if there becomes an over-reliance on remote uh, sensing tools um, to kind of assess the land condition. Um, If that's not been properly calibrated, you know, with regional kind of data points, then, you know, there's the chance carrying capacities could be impacted unnecessarily. So, yeah, big push to make sure that um, any assessments are definitely being ground-truthed. And, yeah, I think there was a, a lot of question marks still left around where the funding or resources could come from to help pastoralists start making a change you know, the, the ball was dropped in terms of monitoring uh, and people who are current leaseholders need to make changes now, but they obviously need support around accessing the appropriate information and strategies to meet those obligations. All right, so there are a few things to work through. Where is this draft framework at the moment? That's right, Belle. So the framework for the West Kimberley is in its draft form and submissions are open until this Friday for pastorists to give feedback on it. The plan is for the new standards to be trialled at five West Kimberley properties next year and those properties haven't yet been announced. Next in line for similar standards is the Nullarbor region, the East Kimberley, the Pilbara and the Southern Rangelands. But eventually these will be rolled out across the whole state. So landholders on freehold land in the agricultural region can expect them to. That's right. The Soil and Land Conservation Act is actually tenure blind. So it applies to land across the entire state other than in urban areas. So not just the pastoral region. Dr Rick Fletcher says Deep Herd will be looking at using a similar concept across the whole ag region. We're looking to apply the similar framework across the state in many respects, but obviously the focus will differ in the, in the different locations. So the same type of approaches we're looking to 
apply within the agriculture regions, particularly associated with uh, avoiding uh, wind erosion, say, on grain areas. It's different uh, specifics, but the concepts are the same in terms of you know, what level of you know, ground cover and other things do you need to have that are actually going to minimise the risks of uh, wind and, uh, and water erosion on, on properties. So it's the same principle, but we just come up with, uh, with different measures that then we'll expect, I guess, the grain growing group to actually uh, comply with. Now, it's a while until we'll see these changes rolled out in the ag region. Dr Rick Fletcher says perhaps within the next five years, but the focus first will be on northern parts. So one to keep an eye on, Belinda. Steph Sinclair just chatting to Belinda Varischetti about the new land management standards that will soon be coming into play initially in the West Kimberley and then in some of those other areas of Western Australia that she mentioned and then eventually even under freehold land. It'll be interesting to see if people have their head around that and if not, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is going to be like when people do start to get their head around it. 28 to 1 on the Country Hour, this shortened show, just during the lunch break of the cricket, the first test between West Indies and Australia. Uh, Shortly, we'll also have the four-day weather forecast, and I'll also go through all the harvest ban information as well. But uh, first up, an application to list the Gascoigne and Lyon rivers as one large Aboriginal heritage site has raised some concerns from pastoralists and Carnarvon growers. The Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage says there'll be no impact to land ownership or access. But the department is also saying future activities that could damage or alter a river course may require approval under the state's Aboriginal Heritage Act. A number of WA rivers have already been added to that Aboriginal Heritage Register. But Hamish McTaggart runs Bidgee Meyer Station, which is about 170 kilometres east of Carnarvon, and he says news about their local rivers being included actually uh, came out of the blue. To the best of my knowledge, there's been no consultation at all with any of the stakeholders in my part of the world here at Gascoigne Junction. Um, it was yeah, news to all of us. Uh, here at Bidjamai, we've got uh, nearly 100 miles of the Lyons River and, and Gascoigne River frontage through the middle of the place. So uh, I would have thought, you know, we would have been somebody that the department could have contacted to, you know, to uh, make us aware of, of these potential changes. And what kind of impacts might the changes have um, for, for pastoralists like yourself? Uh, well, speaking probably on behalf of the pastoral sector, I suppose, um, there's, there's um, you know, as many as four or five um, stations that this would affect quite significantly, really. The new area of proposed Aboriginal cultural heritage site is, you know, makes up a, a pretty major part of our station and, and the most important part of the station being the, you know, the, the river systems of which... All of our freehold land and, you know, most of our riparian prime grazing country runs right through the middle of it, you know, so it, it potentially, you know, it, it could be very significant and uh, depending where all where all this goes, yeah. And, and I'd, I'd, I'd say I'd, I'd probably share the sentiments of the other landholders in the, in, the, in the area. What do you think the state government should be doing? We're formulating our response um, now, which, you know, we haven't been given adequate time to, you know, process these proposed new changes. And, you know, we're all sort of pretty busy people and, you know, we were, a lot of people are still mastering and in the middle of things, it's just, just time to, uh, you know, consult each other and our friends and what we all think about it and have a have a have an adequate amount of time to respond to these 
uh, to this process and learn about the process and learn what it probably means for us, you know, and to possibly even add to the, the conversation. And, and as much as anything, just learn learn from it. I, I would have thought, you know, somewhere between 10 days and two weeks is, uh, you know, a completely inadequate amount of time to let us know about that process. And, you know, uh, Christmas is coming up soon and, and, and to just some more time to just some more time to respond to it. Yeah, I, I can't think of too many um, industries wh- where we'd be treated this way, you know. Uh, if it was any other industry, uh, you know, in a, in a metropolitan area, I'd reckon this would all be getting handled fairly differently. Yeah. You know, our greatest fear, or my greatest fear, I suppose, is that this act and these guidelines and, th- and this process going forward to protect Aboriginal cultural heritage, which, you know, everybody's everybody's keen on that, um, every, ev- everybody that I know, wants to protect Aboriginal cultural heritage, it's precious and it should be protected. But if a system is designed uh, around, uh, you know, to protect it, if, if it fails, then, uh, you know, and, 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 and the system is designed to fail or, or does fail, uh, it'll just be a lose-lose for everybody. Hamish McTaggart from Bidjimaya Station talking to Peter DeCryfe about an Aboriginal heritage listing for the Gascoigne River. And on the full digital program... You can also just hear Carnarvon Growers Association, the town's growers associations, Nick Cuthbert, just talking about some of his concerns about that Aboriginal Heritage Act and how it could affect some of the farmers actually in the uh, area of Carnarvon as well. As I mentioned, uh, very shortly we'll be uh, chatting to the Weather Bureau just to find out what's in store for the next uh, four days and more. But uh, first up... A German company wants to build a wind farm off the Western Australian coast that it thinks could generate enough energy to power a million homes. When you bear in mind the gas leak that's happening in the Carnarvon Basin at the moment, just off Varanus Island, that uh, could be quite significant, but it's not going to happen overnight. Skyborne Renewables is partnering with Australis Energy to develop the wind farm. And the aim is to build it off the coast of Mile Up. So we're talking around about 140 kilometres south of Perth. Consultation is currently underway for this. Miriam Tome is the Managing Director for Skyborne Renewables. And she says if all goes to plan, it uh, still won't be ready in time to solve some of the state's impending power supply problems. Yeah, so we're looking at uh, developing an offshore wind farm here in, in Mile Up. It's a state waters and Commonwealth waters pro- project together. It has about 15 turbines in state waters and about um, 111 turbines altogether with the Commonwealth waters. The Commonwealth waters um, process is a little bit later on. That will be um, hopefully declared by the federal minister, uh, Minister Bowen, around 2024. Will the Bunbury region be a declared zone for offshore wind? That's when we can commence all our um, environmental and technical studies and apply for a feasibility licence in that uh, area. So why bring this project to WA? It's, from what I understand, the first in WA. And why bring it to the Mile Up region? So WA um, has got a, a large requirement on, on electricity and with the WA policy to reach net zero by 2050, we do need to make up all that electricity that is being turned off by the coal fire power station and that needs to be made up by, by renewables. And we have to, um, we can't make that up only by onshore wind and solar because we need to have that renewables at a scale and that's where offshore wind comes in. And this region was just ideally located. It's close to the port, it's close to the, the grid connection, it's close to load. From, from many perspectives, it was an ideal location. 
So how will this fit in with the closure of the Collie power stations? Well, we will probably be a little bit later in the producing of the electricity than the Collie power station. I think that was scheduled to be closed by 2028. Construction for this project won't start until 29.30. And there's a lot of uh, development work that needs to be done beforehand and approval processes and environmental and technical studies that go into this process. So we will, we will be able to, to support all the electrification processes in the area from, um, from larger smelters or um, large load industries. So what about that gap between when they've turned off the power stations and you're yet to come online? Will there be enough power for everyone? That is a very good question. <laughs> we will hope so. Um, and um, I don't, I'm not sure if the coal-fired power station closure will be delayed, but I'm sure it's not only relying on us to provide um, renewable electricity. There are lots of other renewable projects in the area. And we, will, we, were here, we are here to, to support that process and, and play our part in the industry here in WA. Um, but, yeah, it's not, not just only on us to, to make up for that electricity. When you're online, how much will you bring in terms of to the grid? It's about 1.9 gigawatts. Okay. And also you mentioned businesses as well. What are you thinking in that space? Um, So it would be large, large loads such as... um, aluminium refineries and so on they they're going through electrification processes in in their systems so we we're happy to to supply them with um, renewable electricity once they have gone through the electrification process because they have a very large load on, on electricity at that point in time have you signed any deals with any of the local companies no we haven't we are in in discussions with several different companies uh, and I guess in terms of the community concern, this is Mile Up is this beautiful little seaside hamlet uh, and when people look out their windows they'll see wind turbines, which not everyone is happy about. What would you say to those people? Well, we're happy to hear everyone's thought and that's why we're here today to have that uh, com- early on community consultation. We want to hear what the community says and take all of the input into our um, design. Um, we have not started detailed design, so now is the time to speak up and, and let us know what's important to you. And you will see the turbines from from the shore, but it will it will kind of blend in with the background essentially as well. And what about environmental concerns? There's a wetlands nearby, and you know we've got the whale migration, birds, and things like that. Uh, how will you ensure they're not impacted? So we do um, extensive environmental studies for about a two-year time period where we look at different seasons of whale migratory patterns and also uh, bird migratory patterns and any other um, seabirds, um, shorebirds and so on, and we will uh, evaluate all of this and, and minimise any impact. Miriam Tome is the Managing Director of Skyborne Renewables, just chatting to Jackie Lynch about the idea to build a big wind farm off the coast of Mileup, about 140 k south of Perth, and the aim is to power about a million homes, which is fairly significant. Well, it's time to catch up with the Weather Bureau to find out what is actually happening over the next four days or so. Carolyn Crow is the duty forecaster today, and Belinda Varischetti just asked her to look around, firstly, the southwest land division. Yeah, good afternoon, Belle. Uh, So at the moment, there's a trough that's sitting uh, just inland from the west coast from uh, the central west. So it's west, east of um, Morrower at the moment, and it extends south and just pops off the coast south of Perth uh, towards a low that's developed in the trough. And what we're seeing is... um, 
Thunderstorms formed on the trough overnight last night were associated with a little bit of mid-level instability and we're seeing those thunderstorms still through uh, central and eastern parts of the southwest land division at the moment. And then during the day as we get some more heating east of that trough, we're going to get uh, convective uh, daytime thunderstorms form as well. So anywhere east of that trough we're looking at thunderstorms during the day. Uh, they could be quite gusty thunderstorms as well, particularly in eastern and um, those northeastern parts of the Southwest Land Division uh, during today and also uh may not see a lot of rainfall from the thunderstorms. There is the odd chance that you could get 10 to 15 millimetres from one of them and that's once again most likely over those northeastern parts of the southwest land division but otherwise little or no rainfall so there is the risk of that dry lightning as well. Now during the day that trough is going to gradually move east slowly uh, to be a little bit further inland from the uh, west coast and that low that's in those southern parts will move over the southwest uh, division um, district as well. Um, so those showers and thunderstorms going to continue during today and as I mentioned potentially some gusty winds, not a lot of rainfall so dry lightning there and also uh, hot conditions with north northeasterly winds uh, east of the trough as well. On the western side of the trough we're seeing northwesterly winds. Uh, they are humid as well so it is getting more humid towards the west coast and they will gradually turn west during the day. Coming into Thursday that trough is going to continue to move east. So by Thursday morning, the trough's sitting over far eastern parts of the southwest land division, so around the southern cross area and extends south towards the uh, south coast in between Albany and uh, Bremer Bay. So anywhere east of that trough, we're looking at those northeasterly winds, once again, hot conditions and uh, those thunderstorms again coming into Thursday. And then on the western side of the trough, we're going to be in a west north uh, southwesterly airstream, cooler conditions through those western parts will be humid near the west coast as well and there is the chance of getting just some light drizzle through the lower west coast and the southwest division so sort of south of Perth area there down to Bustleton and that Albany area through there but just light falls expected with uh, that drizzle. And then coming into Friday, the trough has moved out of the southwest land division, so the thunderstorms will have cleared and a ridge starts to push through south of the state ahead of a weak cold front. Uh -huh, that's approaching from the southwest, but generally clear conditions through most of the southwest land division coming into Friday. And then into Saturday, as that ridge pushes through, we get a moist southeasterly airstream along the south coast and that weak front, it does slip away, but just enough to still bring some showers to the southwest corner. So looking at from about Bustleton across to Israelite Bay there, south of that line, you're looking at sort of the isolated showers um, in that moist onshore airstream. Light falls once again. And then coming into Sunday, the ridge continues to push through and we start to see another trough extending into the southwest land division. So central and northeastern parts of the southwest land division, east of the trough, will potentially see some isolated showers and thunderstorms once again and just on the south coast those uh, isolated showers in that moist onshore airstream. We'll also see uh, some temperatures starting to warm up again through the southwest land division coming into the weekend as well. And then what's the story for northern and eastern parts Caroline? 
Yeah, so that trough uh, that I mentioned in the south extends all the way into uh, the central part of the uh, Pilbara. So it goes through the Gascoyne into the Pilbara and right to the Pilbara coast there. And anywhere east of that trough, we're going to see showers and thunderstorms. Uh, they could be quite gusty as well uh, and little or no rainfall once again. Um, so there is those risk of dry lightning. And then into the Kimberley, the Ridge that's to the south is pushing a east to southeasterly airstream over um, northeastern parts. Um, sorry, eastern parts of the state and into the Kimberley. So the showers and thunderstorms through the Kimberley have eased off uh, gradually and confined more towards the coastal parts and just the sort of western parts extending into Fitzroy Crossing area through there. Coming into Thursday, the trough once again is moving east and the showers and thunderstorms will be confined to east of the trough through central and eastern parts of the Pilbara into eastern parts of the Gascoyne and extending right through into the goldfields and western parts of the Eucla. And then coming into Friday as that trough moves east, we do see uh, the showers and thunderstorms become more confined just to the eastern parts of the uh, Gascoyne into sort of central uh, parts of the Pilbara and into northern parts of the goldfields. Um, gradually uh, the th showers and thunderstorms are clearing through uh, the Kimberley on Friday and into the weekend and then into Saturday those showers and thunderstorms are really mostly confined through central parts of the state so that goldfields area, Gascoyne inland parts of the Pilbara and into western parts of the uh, interior. And then the warnings for this afternoon. Yeah, there are quite a few warnings around at the moment. So we have a fire weather warning for... Uh, most part of the southwest land division, so that's in with those hot conditions and northeasterly uh, winds, and that, that the areas that that includes is the central wheat belt, inland parts of the central west, the lower west inland area, and then into uh, parts of the Great Southern as well, and also parts of the uh, south inland south coast district. There is also the uh, marine wind warnings uh, for the Euclid Coast today and then extending through towards Albany and Esperance for tomorrow. And then there's also the flood warning uh, for the Fitzroy River catchment. Now, the rainfall has been easing off uh, through the rich Fitzroy River catchment and it has fallen below the minor level on at the Fitzroy um, crossing. However... The Nuncumba area is still slowly rising and it is above uh, minor and expected to uh, peak near 10.8 metres uh, today and uh, stay above that minor flooding level for the next couple of days. ABC Radio, fire ban information. Yeah, total fire ban has been declared for a lot of Western Australia's local government districts. So during a total fire ban, you can't light, maintain or use a fire in the open air and you can't carry out any activity that could possibly start a fire. A full list of all the current total fire bans can be found on the Emergency WA website. I'm not going to read them all out now because they've been in place all day and they are for a huge part of the state. Just do a search for emergency and total fire bans and you'll find that full list. And for a list of activities you can and can't carry out during a total fire ban, just go to the DFES website. So search D-F-E-S 
and total fire bands. It can be all one word as total fire bands, and then you'll find it. And just a reminder, I know it's the start of summer, but uh, if you do breach a total fire ban, you could be fined up to 25 grand or jailed or both, and the jail terms can be quite significant. ABC Local Radio, Harvest Ban Information. Yes, so due to the risk of fire, a number of authorities, local government authorities, have imposed a ban on harvesting and the use of any equipment that could potentially start a fire. So today they include Beverly, Brookton, Broomhill, Tamblup, Cubaling, Dumbledung, Noangrup, Gamaling, Calamunda, Katanning, Kent, Corder, Coolan, the city of Quinana, Lake Grace, Meriden, Mount Marshall, Northam, Pingley, Serpentine, Jarradale, Swan, 2J, Training, Victoria Plains, Waruna, West Arthur, Westonia, Wickapen, Williams, Woodenilling, Yilgarn and York. Now, if you missed any of those and you want more detailed information, not only on whether your shire has a harvest ban in place or when it's going to be lifted or which zones might be have a harvest ban in place and which ones are going to be lifted, please don't contact us. Go straight to your shire and you'll get all the information from there. And again, just in case you're wondering, the reason we still read these out is because some people are harvesting and they may not actually be in mobile range to be able to receive their texts to do with harvest bans. And uh, the next update, as far as harvest bands goes, will be at uh, five past two this afternoon. Uh, not too much rain to get through. For the entire state, the only real rain was in the northern and eastern forecast districts. So in the Kimberley, not as much as normal. Kilto Station had 11 mils and in the Pilbara, Bonnie Downs had six. And then that's actually around about it. But uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show, we've got uh, an interesting one that's happening tomorrow. So even though the cricket's going to be on, I do encourage you to tune into tomorrow's show. And the way you can do that is by going to the ABC Listen app and then clicking on your region and you'll easily be able to listen to the whole show on digital and streaming. You can also just put in WA Country Hour on the website and you'll be able to stream the show as per normal at uh, five past 12. The reason tomorrow is an interesting one is it's a feature program analysing this season's grain crop, so the highs and the lows, and importantly, it's looking ahead to next season. So at this point, the state is on track to at least match last season's record harvest of 21 million tonnes, but no one is going to be surprised if it's closer to 26 million tonnes, That's unless we have some weather activity between now and when all the, all the grain's actually in the bins. So that'll mean the crop will be worth a record value of around $10 billion. That's a lot of money. Now, that money is going to come in handy for next season because putting in next year's crop is going to be expensive. I know a lot of people will have had meetings with consultants and whatnot. All the main input costs have gone up. Fuel, fertilisers, chemicals, wages, even interest rates are going up. So how are growers changing their programs in 2023 to manage those rising costs and still make a profit? Maybe growing a little bit less planet barley um, because of the disease side of, of that, but no, my, my program stays 
fairly constant. Um, I don't try to chase markets or anything, but um, unless something unforeseen happens, it would be, be fairly similar to this year. It really comes down to seasons and markets the closer you get to that seeding date. So, you know, if we get early breaks and there's subsoil moisture and seeding opportunities, we'll just have to be ready to go and just take them when we can to make sure we can capitalise on them. And the cost of inputs is probably the killer. I think fertiliser, you know, I know, you know, another good year this year, the inputs are going to get more expensive. So it's sort of taken its gloss off it a bit, I suppose. So, yeah, on tomorrow, the, on tomorrow's country, you'll travel around the wheat belt. You'll meet some of the growers who are harvesting some of the best yielding crops they've ever seen and also planning ahead for next season. Importantly, though, if you do tune in to the full digital program, you're going to hear some tips and advice from three of the top agronomists and ag consultants in the business here in Western Australia. That'll be live on the full Country Hours version on tomorrow's show. It'll be a great discussion, and I don't want you to miss out. So with the test match uh, continuing tomorrow, you won't hear the full Country Hour program on your analogue radio like today, so make sure you, you tune in to the full version, again, by going to the ABC Listen app, clicking on your region, and you'll be able to hear it as normal. Well, let's head back to Perth Stadium now. Again, it's the first cricket test between Australia and West Indies. Australia is batting first and uh, is currently one for 72. Uh, I think Marnus Labashain is now not out on 26, and Usman Khawaja is not out on 36.